Hello and welcome back to Season 9 of Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Ash Wednesday lectionary. Our lovely guests this week are the Reverend Dr. Greg Kimura, who is Vice Dean of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. He holds an MDiv from Harvard and a PhD in Philosophy of Religion from Cambridge University. He is the immediate past president and CEO of the Japanese American National Museum in LA and author of fiction and nonfiction published in the UK and US, including the forthcoming Living Sanctuary, which describes his sanctuary work with immigrant communities in Southern California. And last but not least, the esteemed Dr. Sandra Montes, who is a singer, speaker, and writer who loves exploring her indigenous and Latina roots. She is the Dean of Chapel at Union Theological Seminary and serves as a member of the Executive Council of the Episcopal Church. She lives in Texas and New York. Welcome, friends. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on Prophetic Voices um, for this season, and I'm so excited you're here. I know our listeners love to hear your thoughts. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. What what do we need to keep in mind this Ash Wednesday for this year? You know, for me, one of the funniest things, I think, is that yesterday, you know, what's the date for Ash Wednesday? Isn't it the 14th? Yeah, it's going to be Valentine's Day. Yeah. So it's like, you know, if you gave up candy or whatever, it's over for you. <laughs> but I think that's really funny. You know, the start of it all is after Fat Tuesday. But then today is also supposed to be, you know, like drinking with your loved one, right? Or whatever. Some of us are just very angry about being single. That would be me. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's not like a great time, in my opinion, to start. Ash Wednesday, but that's just me. <laughs> it is a very uh, funny period of time to start this all off, but um, and we're recording this a little bit ahead of, of Ash Wednesday, so we don't know what's going to be happening in the world. We know what's happening right now, and there's conflicts everywhere. So one of the things that, that I've always uh, abided by is, is the Karl Barth theory that you preach with a Bible in one hand and a copy of the newspaper in the other. Right. And so we don't, we don't know, but, but since it's a, a holiday, uh, Ash Wednesday is where we, where we are, are compelled as Christians to confront mortality. It's to really look around at those places in the world where, where there's conflict and death mm. and to, uh, you know, look at, Look, look at those situations, you know, whether it's in the world, with, whether it's in our communities and homes, and to, uh, and to really contemplate the concept of death and what it means in, in, in preparation for this 40 days leading up to Easter. So one of the things that I really, really like from the collect is that it really hit me this time as I was reading it again for, for the podcast, where it says, God, you hate nothing you have made. And I think that is um, exactly what you're, what I feel like you're going towards, right? Like uh, there is so much hatred in the world. There's so much violence. And yet there's something very hopeful about knowing that God hates nothing that they made. And so, um, yeah, I feel very hopeful with that, even though there's so much hatred, even in my own heart. And in my own life, um, but there's so much hope for me that I know that God loves me and loves all the things that I may hate about myself 
um, and others even. I think that's one of those things that like, I always am curious about, like, how do we talk and confess sin and talk about sin, sin meaning like missing the mark, right? And do that in a way that um, doesn't allow us to move into a place of shame, right? Like guilt versus shame, guilt, I've done a bad thing, shame, I am a bad person. And I think that's something to keep in mind. How do we do that? And I love that you brought that up, Sandra, because I think that helps us remember that God loves us. Mm. How would you describe Ash Wednesday to someone who is new to Christianity or who hasn't ever experienced it? I was recently with some of my students at Union and somebody asked who is not a Christian or and didn't understand what we meant by Advent. And what I found really interesting, funny, cute, I don't know, all these emotions was that somebody said, oh, this is when you get a calendar and every day you open up and eat a new chocolate and it's amazing. (laughs) It's like the 24 days. And then, and I was like, you know, I'm here going, okay, we're all, we're in seminary. This is seminary. I was like, and, (laughs) you know, this is also (laughs) that waiting. Right. So for me, I think, um, Either the obviously like, oh, you know, we put ashes on our foreheads. You know, that's something that's super, super simple, I guess, you know, to, to share with people. Um, and, you know, it's it, for me, when I started really thinking about Ash Wednesday, because even as a evangelical Christian, we didn't really celebrate that the way, um, you know, other denominations do. So for me, it was really powerful to think, that like what you were saying, Shaniqua, like thinking about my own mortality and about, you know, that I am dust and I will return to dust. And so how do I think about that um, and can actually look at that and know, again, as a follower of Jesus, as a believer in, in um, continuous life, how do I live into that and, uh, and create hope and give hope? To people around me. So for me, it's, it's, it's almost like thinking, okay, how can I say this to a child who is really just asking, what is it? And not necessarily interested in learning all those deeper things, but, um, and then going from there, right. Re- depending on the relationship that you're trying to build with this person. So. I always thought it was funny. I, for a early part of my career, I was a university chaplain for a, a private university and, and a public university. And it was really tough to get uh, students into the chapel, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, Sandra, not your chapel. <laughs> <laughs> the most successful service that we had, when we'd have, I'd have a, a weekly Zen meditation. And I bought, you know, the, the little round pillows. And, you know, we get 20, 30 people sometimes for that. But the, but the one service that, that the Christian service that we would do uh, that would really attract people who didn't know much about Christianity, mainline Christianity, uh, was Ash Wednesday. And I think that there is an awareness, especially um, amongst younger people who may be a step removed, not have the vocabulary, not, that, that they know that this time where the priest comes and you have this little, you know, ashing cross on, on your forehead and with those probably the most sobering words in our whole uh, prayer book, you know, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, they kind of like that seriousness. Hmm. They appreciate. They know that something important is happening. 
And, um, you know, when one is a younger university student, I think there's a lot of self-exploration that's going on. And so the idea that it's going to be, uh, uh, Lent is going to begin at this time, you're going to be going through a moral self-inventory, you're going to spend time, more time in prayer, you're going to spend time with uh, scripture, that there's something attractive about it, precisely because it's serious and also because it's hard. And I found that the, 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 the students, they want they, they to know the meaning about everything. You know, they want to know things like, what's the right way to do it? You know, where do we nod, genuflect, bow, all that type of thing. And that's all part of the same sort of mystery that happens that they know is serious. They don't maybe not understand all the, I mean, I'm not, who does really understand all the mysteries that are going on in, in this holiday? But, um, but it, it's, it's, it's serious and it recall, requires uh, some work and they seem to be pretty up for it. Uh, even if they're just in a state of exploration and you know, not entirely committed. But um, I look at it as a good annual opportunity to um, get people to think seriously about about things that are spiritual and and uh, even even things that young people tend to not think about, like their own finitude. So, you know, one year, one of the first years that I was I was at Union, one of the, you know one of the challenges for me was uh, because we have so many different religions and things you know, to, to make these services, um, available or open to all. And so what I really, really enjoyed was that, um, you know, people that were, that are not followers of Jesus wanted the ashes, but not on their forehead. And so we offered, you know, where would you like them? And then they wanted a little heart, you know, on their, you know, palm or on you know, the back of her hand. I mean, it was just, it was just this other kind of, like you were saying, you know, just this other kind of symbol of, of what they gathered from what Christians were celebrating, you know? So I thought that was, I love that. Last year we had to do Ash Wednesday um, on uh, Fat Tuesday. There was a big snowstorm that came. And so the Bishop was like, if you want to do Ash Wednesday this night, you can, because everything was going to be closed the next day. And so we, we, we offered to do it and people were like, yeah, let's do it. And so there's some kids there who don't normally come to stuff like that. And they asked me what it was. And I was like, had to think on the fly, you know, and I'm glad I didn't have time because otherwise I would have thought too deeply and probably mumbled too much. But I was like, it's the church year day of YOLO because <laughs> that's how I sort of de described it to him. <laughs> and then we remember that we are mortal. And he was like, <laughs> I'm on ashes. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, that sort of leads me to another question. Uh, I know some people have talked about like glitter ashes. I, I know people have really strong feelings about glitter ashes sometimes. What are your thoughts about glitter ashes? Sandra, I know you talked a little about changing and maybe putting it on people's hands or hearts or things, but what, what do you think about glitter ashes? You know, for me, I, I talk about balance so much and I talk about, you know, making things um, accessible to people. And if that's going to, you know, bring you life, then why not? You know, I would love, you know, we have drag chapel um, at Union and I would love to have one year when the drag queen is doing, you know, the ashes, mm. uh, especially ashes to go. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, it's to me, honestly, as a, as a teacher, it's hell to have glitter anywhere because it gets on everything. <laughs> 
you know, but at the same time, you know, I love that. I love the glittery part of life. And if I could wear glitter from head to toe, I would do it, including with my ashes. So for me, it's fine. And at the same time, I also feel like there needs to be, you know, just quote unquote regular ashes so that people feel, you know, if that's what feeds them, then they can also do that. And I feel like when you have um, options, not too many because I know that's anxiety driven, but if you have just a couple of options, then that also gives you, you know, you may also give yourself like a, uh, a, what's it called? Like you may surprise yourself and decide to go with the thing that you may have never gone for, which would be like dance with glitter, you know? And so I think that's just, you know, bring it all. Hmm. I have absolutely no experience with glitter, uh, ashes. So, um, you know, I can't really speak to that. Uh, however, it does. Um, I remember when I was an undergraduate student and I went to a Roman Catholic school, um, a Jesuit school. And I remember, uh, how different the attitude toward ashes were for some of the kids who'd gone up through straight through parochial school and, and, and from how I was raised as an Episcopalian in Alaska. And it go, gets to the, the heart of the Matthew, uh, uh, scripture reading on this is like, don't show, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't, you know, show that you're, you're, you're fasting and distend your face and those, those sorts of things. And it, it, it it's the, it's the, the issue that 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 exists for Episcopalians today too, which is, okay, you go to your Ash Wednesday service at noon. Do you leave the ashes on for the rest of the mm. day? Uh, um, and and from the perspective of the person who's doing the ashes, ashes, do you make a huge uh, cross on the forehead, uh, or is it just like really light? And um, and and. And, and so the implication is, are you, you're, you're doing this for yourself? Are you trying to do this so you can tell other people that you did it? And, and it, it, it raises all these issues. So that to me, that the, the glitter uh, ash thing is a subset of this larger uh, concern that we all have of, okay, what is the meaning of the ashes? Do we want to be presenting about it? We want it to be more, okay, we go to it and then we go after church or the bathroom and, and wash it off or, or what. So um, I think there'll be different perspectives on it wherever you go and uh, across denominations too. But I have yet to see glitter ashes. Is this a common thing now? You'll see all over Facebook pretty soon. Like there was a bunch of people who were doing it more like the, maybe the, not to call it specific denominations, but I'm about to like some of the Lutheran and Methodist, um, some of the more happy clappy-ish type of churches, they'll do that. I oversee the um, the traditional LGBTQTI plus uh, service here at Grace, and um, I'm going to raise this. I'm going to ask folks there uh, um, what they if they want to try it this year. So we'll see. Just make sure it's the like biodegradable, easy to <laughs> to get rid of. Like I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yes, I mean, there's there's a glitter for makeup that is also very safe. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be i'll be curious to hear back greg what they what they say one of the things you said greg made me think of like when you were talking about the mystery and uh the liturgy piece and i remember like as lakota people were taught that ceremony and the sacred aren't things that are meant to be 
understood they're things that are meant to be experienced and so maybe some of those young people who are coming to you were there for that experience and although they wanted to fully understand it we have to try and remind them that this is meant to be something we experience not always something that we're meant to understand sometimes our churches want to move so much from like the sin of racism or the sin of homophobia or all those things that happen and go straight into this reconciliation piece without this piece of lament and um i think uh lent uh and ash wednesday can kind of give us something to to a lesson about that what, what might we be able to take from that and apply that to what's going on in terms of our our society yeah i've always thought um you know with some of the political uh, discourse that's out there where um you know some states are are trying to um outlaw in curriculum curricula and elsewhere talk about systemic racism and, and, and things like that, that under the, under the guise of, of religion, that they don't understand what sin is <laughs> that, that, um, and the, in, in, you know, particularly when we're talking about Ash Wednesday and beginning uh, Lenten discipline is, is you're actually forced to, to, to look at our, at one's participation in, not just in, in the individual things that we may fall, uh, fail in, um, uh, but also the the systems that are out there that we all participate uh, in, and 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 to take those, take that seriously, and that and you know conveniently Christian theology has a term for that. It's it's sin. It's not just you know doing good and bad. It's it's one's participation in something that is um, ontological. That is that's baked into social systems and in the in, into the cosmos, and not in a way that's supposed to be um, you know continually self-deprecating, but to to remind us of our own fallibility on many levels, but also our uh, our our need for for redemption and salvation, and our the, the necessity of the um, of the relationship to 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 the divine, which is outside of that cycle of, of, of sin or brokenness. Um, that's part of that whole mystery thing. I mean, like, you know, when I was talking about why, why people were not, not necessarily church go, coming to uh, uh, the Ash Wednesday service at a college chaplaincy, being interested in it, um, you know, they know things are wrong in the world and that, that maybe they're not uh, failing in individually too, but um they want to. F they, they understand this system, and they want to try and find a way out of a closed loop of, hmm. of this of, of of the cyclical uh, aspect of it. And the only way, f you know, theologically for theologically for that, in this monotheistic understanding, is to is is utter reliance on on God, um, who is outside of that that cycle. Yeah, for me, it's. Um... Anytime we can have, we can use liturgy and our, um, the things we always do and our Book of Common Prayer to push people forward uh, to really be followers of Jesus and to listen to what Jesus um, commanded, which is, of course, again, like to love everyone, to not be uh, violent, et cetera, et cetera, I think is great. So if we can use, if, if our leadership uh, both, uh, you know, people of color and people without a color, um, if we can, you know, get together and actually, you know, 
make it about that, right? Make it about, okay, we're going to use this time of Lent to repent of, uh, of this, whatever this is for this year. And because all of us need to repent, you know, of all the things and, uh, and to truly understand what it is that we are repenting from. And then, you know, maybe there can be reconciliation at the end and maybe there can't. I mean, that's, those are, you know, to me, they're, they don't go hand in hand. I mean, forgiveness, of course, is is mandatory, right? Because of what Jesus has said. But I don't think, and I don't think that that means that I'm going to go back with you and be like, oh yeah, we're cool. We're together, you know? Um, and uh, so anyway, so all of those things for me are, you know, if we can use what what we have in our denomination, great. And I think I love when people, uh, when leadership is open to doing that. Yes, we are, of course, going in the season of Lent, but we are not shying away from what we're seeing right now, you know, which is, you know, hatred towards um, uh, Arabs or hatred towards, you know, Jewish people or hatred. You know, we, we know exactly what we're, we're, uh, what we're seeing around us, like you said, you know, the newspaper in one hand or social media on one hand and the Bible in the other, right? And being able to see, okay, this is what's really, what really needs to be looked at and then doing that. Um, I think I love that we do things ahead of time. I know like this podcast is, you know, a few months ahead of time. And at the same time, I always challenge us also to be able to say, you know what, that was happening in January, but right now this is what's going on and this needs to be addressed Mm. right now. Um, And a lot of times Episcopalians don't like to do that. You know, especially in our big churches and our cathedrals, you know, where we like to be wherever we had, you know, we, we already planned that three years ahead. Okay. <laughs> the world did not plan that three years ahead, you know? So, so for me, um, especially as Episcopalians, uh, that we say that we are about, you know, all this freedom and we are open, et cetera. We need to also look at our liturgies and look at, um, how we can be change makers, in our congregations and in the world. I think this is the great thing, uh, Sandra. I think appreciate those comments uh, of, of of this particular day, uh, in the beginning, marking it as the beginning of Lent, is because there's, it's not optional. Um, this is like we are we're spending forty days now, and in in and it's not just you know self examination, but it's commitment to to try and, and do better um, with God's help. Um, so it, 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 it's a forced reckoning that happens annually. That that's, that's one of the, the beauties of it. And I think another kind of beauty of it too, is that this we, earlier, uh, um, I think Shanika, you were talking about mystery and about just the need of, you know, you can't describe it. You just have to participate in it. And I think that's, there's something, something to that too, that it's weird, right? Saying these words, getting a cross on you—it's strange if you're not part of that. But that strangeness is part of its part of its appeal, and it marks the importance of okay, we are going to be doing something, and we're going to do, doing something that, yes, for, for us who are already churched and everything, you know, we do every year, and maybe we get into a rut in it, but we're we're forced to try and get ourselves out of a rut of of whatever that thinking and acting and acting is, and um, so it can be a pretty ironically uh, spiritually refreshing time as well 
it's also important to remember that Jesus, you know, we're doing this because ostensibly Jesus went out into the desert for 40 years, or for, pardon me, <laughs> Israel for 40 years, uh, Jesus for 40 days, right? And then, you know, faced temptation at the end and everything and, um, you know, chose the deeply spiritual and humane, chose care and love over money, wealth, and power. Hmm. Uh, and Jesus did that. And we have the opportunity to raise those same things in our own particular faith life, which is, to me, is really, really profound. This parallel between Bible and, and to, uh, to uh, our own practice. Yeah, wouldn't it be amazing if the our church actually did uh, not choose wealth, power, and what was the other one that you said about Jesus? <laughs> I mean, that would be amazing. And yet we continue to choose that over evangelism. We continue to choose that over um, over going outside of our buildings. Uh, you know, we, we continue to choose our buildings and our organs and our choirs and our people that we pay, particularly uh, people who are not people of the global majority, instead of choosing uh, life for those who are actually suffering and who need and deserve life. So I do wish that we would actually do that as Episcopalians. That would be amazing. Let me move us to the gospel, because that makes me think of that line about do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and uh, rust consume. How has Ruster Moth consumed the treasures of our church? Uh, or how, wh- where are we storing things up? Sandra, you sort of alluded to that. Um, but how do we store up treasures in heaven? You know, Sandra raises a, a, a really important point. We're both in the world, and we're, but we're not supposed to be of the world. And um, we have all these things that churches have to deal with, like keeping the lights on and paying... Um, retirement and getting one getting the diocesan assessment uh paid and 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 so it, it is this it is, it is this crazy balance and um to me hopefully it's not an either or um but there is a a, a big temptation to for the church to spend all its time in 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 fundraising and development uh, to keep its doors open. And for important reasons, I think um, one thing that COVID has taught everyone is the importance of, of, of place, of, um, in the Japanese uh, Shinto tradition, we call that uh, kame. Like um, if you think of uh, like all the, all the art that's been done with Mount Fuji in the background, that, that, that there, there are places that have particular types of holiness that are very sacred and, um, filled with, with spiritual meaning. And, you know, uh, we seem to have lost a lot of that, uh, in the Western way of thinking, but our, our churches, our cathedrals are, 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 are those places. Um, and people want to have a a place to come to that's awe inspiring, beautiful, and and spiritually uplifting. And those things do come at a cost. So it's a, it's a tough balance to do sometimes. Um, and, and uh, I guess Lent is a time for the church itself to ask itself, where do you want to spend your time and your resources? Yeah, you know, I, I respectfully disagree about that's the important thing about having a place. 
Um, I don't know if it's because I'm indigenous or Peruvian uh, or not sure, but for me, those places that are sacred are usually outside. I, I've never felt, um, or with people, like for example, no matter where my dad and my mom are, that's sacred to me. And, mm. um, and like, for example, like Machu Picchu, I've never been there, but I can't wait to go. And it's outside, it's in nature, it's the the incredible of it. You just said, um, you know, something about nature also, the Japanese nature. It's To me, it's found outside. A cathedral, to me, I, I'm sorry, but I have never gone to a cathedral that I'm like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. Because that is not my aesthetic. You know, that is not something I mm. aspire to. I have never seen an organ that I'm like, oh my God, how beautiful. I haven't. Um, so, but that again is me. To me, if we actually, you know, to keep the doors open, we don't need a cathedral that that's lar- that that's that large. You know, we don't need the National Cathedral to look like that. We don't need to continue to to make different things that cost so much money to make a place, quote unquote, sacred. It, where I mean, the, if we believe uh, the Bible, I mean, where spirit is, where the, where um, creator is, where Jesus is, it's everywhere. It's in ourselves. So, um, and I do, I question us, you know, as part of the executive council, I have asked those questions. Why do we continue to use this money for things that will, uh, if we actually allowed them to become dust, I wonder what would it look like, you know, for our church? What, would it be larger in numbers instead of in money? Would it be larger in, in, um, community outreach? Would it be larger in, in experiences for others would the would not the episcopal church but christianity or actually followers of jesus would that be more you know with peace and all of these things that are important um you know when i see budgets i and of 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 big churches compared to the budgets of of a lot of our people of color you know where it's those churches that are only of people of color. I mean, our budgets are tiny, tiny, tiny. And yet our reach is so much larger than a lot of our huge churches. So, um, you know, for me, that's what I look at, right? I'm in Houston, Texas right now. This is my diocese. And the largest church apparently in the nation is St. Martin's, I think, or St. John the Divine, one of the two. And, um, and I would love to know what they're doing with their money. You know, so um, and if they're actually touching their, you know, because I've been there before and I have not been, you know, like said, welcome to this church. How can, you know, we help you to, you know, with whatever your life is going. So for me, it's those things. How are we using our resources to really do what Jesus asked us to do? Um, And if that question is answered by, oh, we have to keep the cathedral open. I'm sorry, but I do not accept that as a, as a, an answer or the diocesan church, you know, places open. I mean, why, you know, you can, all of us could work. I think the, what's it called? Pandemic taught us that all of us can work remotely. Um, we actually do not need those spaces, those places, but we actually needed the space, you know? Um, so anyway, so those are my thoughts. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this during pandemic and even before, uh, because we have so many people who can't get to churches. They cannot physically get to a, a a place. But, you know, we have the internet, we have phones, smartphones, et cetera, that can actually connect us all um, and have those um, uh, 
relationships. I mean, right now we're having a holy moment and, um, and there's no organ here and there's, you know, there's not a choir and et cetera. So anyway, so for me, that's, that's what I look at the importance of that. So if our treasures where our heart is, what does that say about the amount of our budgets spent on reconciliation and social justice work? I mean, that's what I'm saying. So one of the things like I, I always would challenge, you know, my dad's a priest, my brother's a priest, my sister, my cousin, uh, niece-in-law is a priest. So for me, it's always like, okay, if we say that music is important, then the budget needs to show that. If we say that youth is important, we need to show that. And usually those are the least in, in a lot of churches, right? Like it's like, oh my gosh, like you just said, you know, we have to keep the building open. And so that's the biggest budget item. And then these other ones are so tiny, tiny, tiny. I actually think the the, the biggest part of any budget is uh, uh, are the employees, i.e. whether it's uh, clergy or or um, uh, additional staff. So if you're talking about an operating budget, that, that's far and away the, the biggest. So that is a reality. Well, it depends, though, right? Because like in, in my church that I, I was in for over 30 years, it was just my dad. Like, I mean, and he did not make a lot of money. So, you know, our budgets, yeah, that might've been, you know, quote unquote, a large budget, but it's like, you know, 30 to $40,000. I mean, it was like nothing, you know, compared to other budgets. But for me, like then you, you, okay. Besides the employees who, you know, in some places it's a hundred and other places one or two, um, the other budget, the working budget for the, the ministries though, you know, I think that's what, what we have to look at. And if we do, but even that employees, you know, do we pay a, a youth minister? Because I remember applying for many youth ministers jobs, which were like twenty to $30,000. And I'm like, I'm making 60 as a teacher. Why would I ever leave that? You know, if I have a child and I'm a single parent, et cetera. So, so for me, yeah, it's, it's those budgets. If we actually were truly truly uh, interested in reconciliation, in um, anti-racism, we would have budget items for, that would be maybe paid even more than the priest, you know, the the main priest, right? I mean, because if that is truly what we're trying to get, then we would want the best possible person with the best possible budget to to teach this, to help us get to be anti-racists, to be the beloved community, to be all of these things, right? And and I don't see that. I have not seen one diocese, at least, you know, because I look at dioceses all the time, who actually have budget items that are that big for that. Have y'all? Hmm. Well, I think, um, well, I, in, in a perfect world, the, 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 the priest and, you know, like it or not, the, the church is a, a type of hierarchy. Um, would be committed to social justice um, issues and would be would be that 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 mouthpiece, um, and that can't really be fake. In fact, I, I also think that there is a, a a tendency to if we if we think of this as okay, that's your staff person for social uh, justice, then it gets placed in that particular um, area as opposed to being something that everyone has to be, everyone in the church from, from parishioner to clergy have to be, have to be behind. And, um, and, and I think this is part of what uh, the value of, of Ash Wednesday and Lent is, is that 
we ask these difficult questions that uh, that Sandra is is raising. Um, are we doing what we say we are say we're doing, or what we are we are, what we aspire to do? And um, but I do think that it is uh, it is an inevitable um, uh, conundrum that we're going to have to come to that 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 just any sort of operation of of a church or any organization will ha- will come with certain concrete and sadly increasing increasing costs and um and so that's that's the balance um how do we figure how do we how do we balance this with um with um you know giving say all, all one's money to 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 the poor for example so I think sometimes I always talk about it in terms of how much of the church's money is spent focusing inward, like on the church things that happen inside versus how much of it is spent focused on outside. Both of those would require employees, probably. Both of those could require whatever. I know on a lot of our reservations, some of them, you know, the church might only hold, you know, 50 people because it's really small. And so for a lot of them, a lot of our funerals, a lot of the big things that we do are all done in the community building. And that's an example of when you have a building, but it has multiple purposes. People use it for funerals or birthday parties or whatever. Um, And so then the tribe just sort of brings, holds that building, like they're responsible to keep it up, but then you can use it. um, And and anybody in the community can use it for whatever. Uh, Maybe not for whatever, but they have to keep it up. I'm wondering about, somebody brought up alms and it talks about giving alms. And um, sometimes I think we have this very removed idea where it's like, here I am doing this great thing, giving it to you poor people or whatever. Have you ever received an alm and how did it make you feel? So when I was homeless as a teenager, there were plenty of times that people gave things to me. And I think Sometimes some people gave things that was like, they had this sense of like, here I am. It was for them, their benefit. Like they were giving it to me to benefit them, not to benefit me. And you can very, you can feel it, right? They're like, oh, here's this thing. And um, and then there are other folks who might help you out, but it's not, it's about you. It's not about them. Like they want to see you succeed or they want to see you whatever. Like the person who sat with me while I did intake at the group home. So I had a place to stay kind of thing. Um and so have you ever had that experience of somebody giving you something maybe when you were in need? Um, and how did, how did you feel? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I jokingly, but, but not really say is that anything like, if you're going to give me money, give me money, you know, that's cool. I love it. If it's to, to make you feel better, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like that's because, because it doesn't matter. Right. Because I mean, if you're doing it to make yourself feel better, you won't. You will be like patting yourself, but then you're going to need to do it again so that you can continue to do that because your heart is not in it, right? Um, However, I do think that um, when it's like you said, when it's about relationship, because I think that's really what it is. It is about the relationship that you continue to have with somebody where, you know, you may not be able to give anything physical or anything like money or something like that, but you can give time, you can give encouragement, you can um, give support in different ways. Um, uh, And I think that's really important. So I, so for me, it's like, if people give, you know, we, I grew up poor. Uh, My dad was homeless. My mom was super poor. I mean, we grew up poor, but we, like people say, we really didn't know we were that poor until I look back and I'm like, damn, we were poor. (laughs) You know, we never had anything 
uh, new. We never had anything, you know, you know, like with the right label, like it wasn't, you know, what somebody was like, it wasn't a, a Gucci bag. It was a Poochie bag or whatever. You know what I mean? It was never like the right thing, but, um, we loved it because our parents made life just beautiful and, um, and lovely and about, um, being grateful for anything anybody gave. Now, of course, we talk about, wow, that was super racist. That was super, you know, colonialist. And that was so awful. And, uh, but thank God we kind of didn't feel it at the time because it's like, you know, it would have been awful for us. Um, but yeah, for me, it's that it's, I feel like when it's a relationship based um, that's a whole different story. Uh, because then it becomes about us. It doesn't become about me feeling, oh my gosh, I'm so good for giving you this or for that person, you know, or like we always say, well, I always say about, you know, mission trips that they're, you know, camera mission trips, right there. So they can post on social media. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's, I mean, you basically explained it, right? Like, it's like when they do it for themselves versus a relationship that forms. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to be, um, you know, to be honest, there's probably no way to, um, exclude that idea of if you're one's giving an alm, giving a donation, um, that there is some part of that that is self-serving. Hmm. Um, and that's part of the human condition. Um, and I think there's also a certain degree where, um, you know, one has to be prudent also about what one gives and to whom one, one gives, because some people have a very good ability, you know, uh, if they're working in, in, let's say the homeless community of, of knowing what's going to, uh, be useful. And then also what may, um, you know, if the person's going to go out and buy alcohol or drugs or something like that. And I, I've never been very good. So I've, so in, alms wise, I've, I've generally, um, given to institutions that I think are, are trustworthy. And, and I've done that in a, a couple different ways in, in the church. One is, um, I've done a lot of work, um, with, uh, the immigrant community in Southern California and spent some time on the, on the border numerous trips, um, into, um, Mexico and, and, and our last, the last parish I was in, we we're actually part of, um, faith caravan that went to, to, to the border to meet one of the caravans. This was covered in the Washington post and LA times and, and all of that. And then what came out of that was that we sponsored, there were 29 families, um, that were, uh, had been victimized by the, the family separation policy. And, uh, we were able to um, get a, a family within our within our church to um, to, to sponsor asylum seeking family, and eventually the family was reunited, and it's a, it was a, a wonderful thing. But throughout that, working on the border, we found that um, you know there were there was expectation of plata, especially you know when you're dealing with. Uh, the folks on the, the the Mexican side of of like payoffs and and whatever to get things accomplished and get things done and and it was always a kind of a moral decision that the group had to make are we going to expedite this by giving somebody you know a little you know an official some money or something like that um, so and and the upshot of this is that when it came to trying to support groups that were doing important work on the border. Um, you know, I've, I've gone to probably 
maybe eight or 10 different homeless shelters uh, um, in the uh, Tijuana environs. And, um, you know, a lot of them were just, you know, hell holes. So it's like, okay, you want to find groups that are, you know, have some sort of um, good housekeeping seal of approval so that, you know, you're not just, you know, giving alms to an organization that is, is taking that money and putting it in its own pocket rather than taking care of the people who are vulnerable. Hmm. So it's, 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 it's a hard, it's a very difficult, um, in, 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 uh, on the other hand, um, you know, we had, I had, a, I had a, a person who would come to church on Christmas. Um, and that's the only time we'd see him. He was a law professor, you know, a couple states away, but they had a, apparently a relatives or something. So they'd come to this, to the community, come to church. And then he w- would write me a check every year and said, this is for you. Give it to, to, to people that, you know, that, that need it. And I thought, well, that's wonderful because that's like, that allowed me to, to give direct support to, to families that I knew were really, really struggling. Um, and that was a face-to-face relationship with, um, with, with these families. And, uh, you know, it wasn't my money. It was money that had been entrusted to the church essentially to, 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 to distribute it in the right way. And, uh, that can be very, very powerful. I saw it, I saw it be powerful. I mean, I bought, ended up going to things like, you know, winter coats for kids and, and, uh, and that was, uh, when it, when it does work well, it's a beautiful thing to see. Um, that's happened with me with social media. I uh, usually go to social media um, to ask for different things. And a lot of people will reach out to me and will send me some money. And like you said, it's, um, it is really great to, to see the, the power in that, right? The power that, that money can do. And it's because it's, it's about, you know, helping others, like you were saying about the the relationship, not only the relationship with the people who give, but the relationship with the people, you know, that you get to know. So, yeah, it's really powerful. I always think that's been really helpful when I think about how are we engaging in the work that we do? How are we building? How is whatever we're doing helping to build a relationship? Because um, I think that's kind of like the key if it's going to be something that's long, long lasting or transformational. So the gospel talks about fasting. Um, what do you think? A lot of people fast during Lent. Some people don't. Um, I know, like, I usually always tell the story about my friend Jennifer, who's indigenous too. She was like, we have given up enough. We gave up our children and our culture and our language and blah, 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 blah. We don't need to give up anymore for that. And then I know other people are like, no, no, it's part of this own, you know, and I've told my congregation, the native one that I serve, I'm like, you know, do this if you think it will help you. If it helps you understand what it would be like for other folks, then do it. If you don't think it would help you, then don't. Um, but what are your thoughts about fasting? Yeah, so as an ex-evangelical Christian, I do believe in fasting. I do believe in, you know, all those things. I think they they all have a, a place in our faith and our traditions. Um Throughout the years, I have given up things. I have taken up things. I have uh, done different things during the 40 days. Um, And I feel like anything that brings us closer to um, 
to understanding uh, how to be a follower of Jesus in these times, I think will be great. Like I was saying earlier about, you know, having specific things maybe to focus on, I think would be great, you know, with, with churches and, and congregations. Um, and so that's kind of what I do, especially now that I'm not in one church or another. Uh, I do those things for myself and then I'll post on social media, you know, and, and invite others to, to follow along or to share with me what they're doing. And I think it's when we see that too, I think it's always really cool to see the difference of what people are doing in their own lives. When people think of Ash Wednesday, they think of Lent, they think, okay, what am I going to give up? You know, the, the, the average person, that's what they, they think. But if you take a look at the liturgy, it talks about, um, Increased time in prayer, um, moral self-inventory, increased reading of scriptures, and then giving things up. Now, what I did learn when I was in in a car filled with bishops one year is that on Sundays, you do, it's not part of Lent. So you can do whatever it is that you were giving up. Because I remember we were all going to eat some steak and they were all so excited about the steak. And I was like, oh no, you know, I gave up meat red meat for Lent. And they're like, girl, it's a Sunday. We do not fast on Sunday. And I was like, and it was like a, wow, it was amazing. And at the same time, I just felt like I was cheating, you know, because it's like, I, 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 like I joke with, with friends when I gave up uh, chocolate, like I would have the chocolate in my hand right at 12 midnight. So that at 1201 on Sunday, I could start eating the chocolate, but yeah, I don't think that's that's what it's meant to do, right? So <laughs> you make a good point because you know every Sunday is a feast day, uh, and and so that's your little out. And of course, usually when with Easter being a movable feast and thus Ash Wednesday being movable, uh, you have big holidays that fall in the middle of it, like St. Patrick's Day. So mm. <laughs> you get a little bit. That's your that's your out. You know, you do get a little breaks in between. I always think of it as like um, the Hamblecha crying for a vision went as that. And so like mm-hmm. when people do that, they'll fast and they usually don't drink or eat, but they only do it for like mm-hmm. a day, one like one to three days. So it's, it's a little different than, mm-hmm. than this, but like, I'm trying to think, what is it that you need to do to sort of make yourself, make yourself more easily um, able to hear God? And what is it that might you want to give mm-hmm. up to do that? And for, for, I think, at least if I were going to do it, I think a lot of it would be like social media and all the things that get in my way of, of really being able to be introspective. Oh, a social media fast for Lent. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I, I've done that for many years. And I remember my first one was so eye-opening that I had to do it every year for Lent because mm. it it was really interesting for me to notice like, oh, why am I not taking as many pictures? Is it because I'm not going to post them? And I thought that was very odd. So it really was eye-opening. So I would absolutely recommend it to everybody to at least do it once where you give up social media for either Advent or Lent or a year or a month, you know, because it is very eye-opening. So let's shift and talk about Isaiah. Um, And Isaiah you know, talks about justice um, and says that this is the fast 
what you know is this the fast that I choose or um why might Isaiah talk call these justice activities a fast that kind of made me curious well I think the this this, this goes with the self-denial sort of uh, uh aspect of 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 Lent that we've been talking about is um it's 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 also you know a time of deep self-reflection and you are trying to reevaluate what you know the hierarchy of important things in in one's life and 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 strip away the things that are extraneous or distracting you from from what's really important and you know this this the whole third section third isaiah of which this this particular reading comes from um, really marries the tradition of repentance and social justice together. It's mm. one of the, it's, it's, like, it's like the classic uh, area of of, uh, of of Isaiah uh, in, in the in the, the Hebrew scriptures for this, and it's a good reminder, you know, of uh, kind of what we were talking about earlier of the sin of uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, and so forth, and the institutional and systemic structures that, that, um, you know, we say, Oh, I, I didn't have anything to do with that, but, you know, to some degree, just existing within a system, uh, makes you part of and, and complicit with it. So I think that's a really valuable and very deep, um, connection that, that I third Isaiah makes this, this, the self-denial and social justice. And with the idea of of uh, really, um, and, and the, with the, the the reconciling element between the is and the ought being being the divine, being God, which which um, and, and our utter dependence on 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 the divine in order to to re to reach these these um, the ends of of peace, justice, and reconciliation. Yeah, when I was reading this and then I heard you speaking, Shaniqua, about the alms, it this reminds me so much of it when it says, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day. Mm. You know, so it's like almost doing it only for me to be seen, right? And uh, and yet, like, it goes on about, but then you're, uh, you oppress and you quarrel and fight, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think um, that's... That's beautiful to me. That is like um, eye-opening. And at the same time, I do wonder um, if we can do those things, you know, fasting um, in a holy way and not something to be called out on by God, you know, <laughs> you know really you're, you're serving your own interest, girl, you know, instead of actually choosing to do those things and also be about justice and about um, uh, freedom, you know, for all. Where um, have you seen our church or communities address injustice and where have you seen gloom rising or seen places that have become like a watered garden? I'll give a, just a, a couple of examples. Um, my family was historically Buddhist until um, World War II and the Japanese American internment incarceration experience, and it was because of um, 
of a pastor who came into uh, Minidunka camp in, in Idaho, where um, my future grandfather and grandmother were, were incarcerated and agreed to do their wedding. Hmm. And that was like the before and the after of, of the family's walk with uh, Christianity. And he said, listen, eventually this incarceration is going to end. You guys are going to go back to Anchorage. And uh, uh, once you're back there, find a, a faith community and, and uh, one that accepts you and, and, and join it. And so the kind of the joke has been that, that my grandparents converted out of a Buddhist sense of obligation uh, to this pastor, right? Who married them. But, um, you know, the simple fact is, is that, that it took a lot of bravery for this, for this pastor to come in. And it also took a lot of bravery for the Episcopal church, all saints uh, in Anchorage, um, at a period of time where there was a lot of anti-Asian, anti-Japanese mm. sentiment to, um, you know, kind of take a moral stand and say, we're going to be in an open and welcoming and inclusive place uh, for these neighbors who, who have endured all this to prove that they are loyal Americans. So I also think like my kids, I have a, a 21 year old son and a 15 year old daughter. And, um, you know, I grew up in a church where I remember the first women priests, for example, and it, mm, wow. it, took, it took a while for me, you know, you know, the diocese of Alaska didn't have a whole lot of female clergy until probably 10 years later, you know, after the war 48. Um, but I grew up in a church where that was kind of a rare thing. But for my, my kids, you know, the, the important pastors and priests that they have known growing up have been, have been women. And it's not a weird novel or whatever. So the church, when it acts, when it, it acts as its best, when it lives up to that, is, is when it is an inclusive, welcoming place to the outsider. Yes. And, um, and so, you know, we, we fail all the time in the church. Um, but it's also important to remember the, the opportunities, um, in those, those times where, where it could have looked the other way and it actually was brave and, um, and, and, and took a stand. And I think, you know, where I'm at now in, in, uh, at Grace Cathedral, you know, it, it was one of the few places that was really welcoming, welcoming of the LGBTQ community Mm -hmm. during the the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, to a certain degree, still its social justice reputation, um, you know, in large part still rides on that, on, on what happened in the, in the eighties and the early nineties. But, um, that, that, those, those examples are, are to me, important examples of where the church has succeeded in being what it was supposed to be in the beginning. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, I of course see that this, like my dad, you know, and his ministry and my mom's ministry, um, even before it was cool to be, you know, open, they have been open. And so for me, I've seen that in their ministry. And just like you're saying about the Episcopal church, it's so incredible when we are, when we live into what we have promised to be, what our laws have become, uh, in our church, what, um, general convention laws, you know, come through. I mean, it's, we are amazing. I mean, it is a place of openness, of 
of a place that welcomes all. I mean, we were welcomed from the, you know, in the evangelical tradition. People are welcome from all walks of life and all uh, traditions. So I do believe that the Episcopal Church is this when we want to be or when we choose to be, actually not want, but choose. When we choose to do what we are called to do, we are exactly this. We are exactly what a lot of people are looking for. We are exactly what I look for. Um, and even as I criticize my my beautiful and beloved church that I love so much, um, it is because of this, because I know that we can do better. And I know that we have the capacity to do so. I mean, we have so many women, so many LGBTQI plus people, so many people of the global majority in, in places of much leadership and, um, and a lot of places don't. So for me, again, it's, uh, we can absolutely be that to so many people who are so hungry and so thirsty to be welcomed in, to be included, to be celebrated, uh, to be loved on, to, to see themselves in, positions of leadership and power, um, we we are built for that. And I am hopeful, otherwise I wouldn't be in the Episcopal Church anymore. Um, but I am very hopeful that we can continue to do that. Uh, we just have to be courageous and uh, decide uh, to do what, you know, the Lord asks of us of that, like it says here on the fasting side, you know, of justice and being on the right side uh, of justice. I was thinking about the the gloom rising is the the image that sort of stuck out for me, and I was thinking about like like I agree with everything that you've said, um, and the the gloom that's rising I see you know is some of the like how bishops are being held accountable for some of the naughty things that they've done, and people are sort of talking about that more because I think that's sort of a reputation. The, the dark side of the church, so to speak, dark, not in a racial way, but in, in a, yeah, yeah. And, um, and the other thing is like seeing more bishops of color or more folks of color, LGBT trans folks in leadership. We still don't have a trans bishop, not that we have to have one to right. be cool or anything, but you know, um, we do, we do have a trans bishop. No, we do need that so we can be cool. Come oh, on. Okay. 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 Sorry. <laughs> I was like, who? <laughs> just kidding. Um, one of the things that I think is ironic <laughs> is that like in South Dakota, we always badly need bishops. And I wonder if that's probably similar to Alaska for you, Greg. So like we had women bishops or women bishops. We um, had women clergy very early on because they were, you know, they needed jobs and we had jobs, even though we don't pay very well. Um, and so they, they came here and, and I think um, folks just are so happy to have a priest. They, they don't, they're not going to be fussing about some of those issues um, that the other folks might. Any liturgical ideas you have um, for Ash Wednesday? We talked a little bit about glitter ashes. I had wondered about the idea of doing a sort of dinner church. As a, that was going to be my suggestion mm. to try and see what that might look like as a liturgy. But what liturgical ideas do you have for Ash Wednesday? You know, I, uh, I'm i glad you asked this question, Shaniqua. It, um, I used to be, you know, kind of of the opinion that you come to church to get your ashes. But uh, there was this... Uh, um, Methodist minister in Little Tokyo, LA, who would go to the um, go to the subway um, station and would do mobile ashing, and mm-hmm. and 
you know, was very successful in that and for people who could not get to church and, and, but wanted to make a, a good start of Lent. And so I basically stole his, from what I saw, stole that idea. <laughs> Um, when, um, I was in my last parish, when we, we started up a, a Spanish language, uh, service and, um, the way it developed was it was largely, um, Miztec, um, indigenous, uh, uh, folks who were field workers. And mm-hmm. so at the period of time, there was a lot of just, um, animus against, uh, uh, against, against immigrants. And so decided that we're going to do mobile ashing by going to the sites, tr- traditional sites where say the day laborers congregated in, mm-hmm. that, in that town. And so I asked a couple of people who were involved in some of the immigration work we, that, that the church was doing, one of whom was a congregant, um, and one of whom was not, uh, uh, but, uh, it was actually Jewish. And so we said, I said, you come in the one, the Jewish woman, you know, she spoke Spanish as a native speaker. So, mm. uh, so we, we, we went to these places and we went to the, the fields at one time too. And then we actually went to a house where there were, um, folks, um, who are, who are working as housekeepers and, um, and, and did mobile ashing. So instead of expecting people to come to us, we went to where the, where the people were at the Chevron station parking lot in front of the Ace Hardware, um, in, in the citrus fields, uh, orchards mm. that were around this area and, um, at, at, at a house and people were genuinely, uh, moved by that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. and the funny thing about this, I, you know, um, uh, I, I, not a fan of social media, except for when I'm a fan of it. Right. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, Latinx community, at least in the area we, uh, that I was in, in Southern California, they, they highly utilized Facebook. And I think part of that was because there's an internal ability in Facebook to translate from English to Spanish. Yeah. Um, but so someone took some pictures of us doing this mobile ashing at, at, at an orchard and, the one Jewish woman said, you know, to start everything off, I asked the two folks who came with me, but, and by, by the way, the other person was a cultural Episcopalian, but also Jewish. So, <laughs> but the woman said, don't post that picture of me with a, with a, with the ash. <laughs> Mom will, will hit the roof. Right. It was a, a, an, an experience that, you know, was a lot of like, is this going to work? Will people be there? Will they run away? Will they think that we're ice and, you know, but it ended up being quite successful and, and quite, uh, moving. So I, I, I think like mobile ashing, if that works in your community, that's something to consider rather than expecting people to come to you. And this is where I will agree with you, uh, Sandra, about, you know, the church not being the church building itself, not being, uh, absolutely essential, you know, um, the church, of course, is the people, not the building, but um, mm-hmm. uh, you can go and you can actually get outside of the church building some from time to time and, and go to where the people are. Yeah, I agree completely. I've, you know, we've been doing, uh, we call it ashes to go. Hmm. I do like mobile ashing. I like the term, <laughs> but you know, we do ashes to go in Spanish. We call it um, cenizas para el camino. 
Um, my dad has been doing this, of course, as you can imagine, forever. He, uh, which is so funny, you know, again, coming from the Anglican, I mean, from the evangelical tradition, you know, just seeing my dad wearing a dress, you know, and walking around the, you know, the, his uh, community is so beautiful. I mean, he goes everywhere. And, you know, some people don't want it. Some people do. And they just welcome the prayer. My dad will say that too. I'm happy to pray for you. And um, one of the things that I, I, I remind others or encourage others is to have something to hand out. Hmm. Uh, because, um, you know, whether it's a verse, whether, whatever it is, and then, you know, some kind of something so they know where they can reach you again. Hmm. Um, because I feel like that is absolutely important um, for evangelism and for, for people to know where they can go if they need some kind of help, particularly, like you said, you know, the, uh, the people who are either working in the fields or immigrants or um, um, anybody who is afraid of, um, you know, legal things that can happen to them. So, and my dad usually goes here, we have day workers all over in Houston. And so, you know, he goes to those spaces where there's day workers, he takes communion, he takes, you know, ashes, of course, and just, you know, little gifts, etc. Um and then, you know, I've done that at Union since I started. We do Ashes to Go and outside. And, you know, it's it's always very interesting and cool to see uh, the people who don't want it and will be, like, rude about it and the people who will stop and say, oh, my gosh, I knew I wasn't able to, to get to church today because I'm working all day, but thank you. And, you know, we go around. And, and that's the big thing about making relationships around your your community, right, around your buildings, uh, because, you know, it's wherever I go eat, wherever I go shop, that's where I'll take somebody with me or I'll go. Last year, I took one of the professors who wanted to experience Ashes to Go for the first time. And, um, and you know, we went across the street where I get my coffee almost every day. And, you know, and they were just so grateful. I mean, it was it's beautiful to see that, to be able to bring Jesus as Jesus would, right? Jesus would not expect for you to go to him he went to you so um yeah so i i agree with that um there's also all other things right i mean bring in um the uh, whatever your 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 people want i mean people you know the lay people that are just come to your church they have ideas they have art that could go on i think art is truly really important i've just started doodling this year and it is, you know, it has brought up so much, you know, and journaling and, and art. Um, I'm doodling my way through the Bible this year. And, um, and I just, you know, it's just something that a lot of people think, oh, I don't know how to do art. And yet when you just give them a piece of paper, all of a sudden they're like, you know, putting lines together. And, and that's really a, a way of, of connecting with spirit that, that may be different for some people. So, um, also that back and forth to be able to speak with each other, um, during a service instead of just, you know, people just taking it in and, but actually, you know, just conversing instead of a sermon, but, a you know, a convert, a, a conversation with each other, uh, maybe answer these questions, right. You know, what does it mean to fast? What does it mean to do this? Uh, cause I think like, like you were saying that, um, there's people that don't ever come except for a few days and this might be one of them. 
uh, a lot of Latinx people go because they're getting something because of the Roman Catholic traditions. You know, it's very important this day and um, what's it called? Sometimes uh, a Palm Sunday is more important than Easter because they're getting something, you know, they're getting the palm for the rest of their year. So anyway, so those are very important things that um, to keep in mind if you, if you have community members who who are Spanish speakers that you may go invite them for this, right? Or go to them also to, to offer it. Um, yeah. So what tips do you have for preaching? And I'll share two that came into my head. Uh, one is somehow tying the idea that it's Valentine's day with Ash Wednesday, not necessarily to talk about St. Valentine, but the idea of love tying into how does, how does love tie into Ash Wednesday and why, how do these things. And the thing that I'll, I'll, the, the nugget I will leave is in Lakota, one way that we say I love you, te chihila, means I will suffer for you or I will endure for you. And so if we think about tying that thing about fasting, right, the, is this the fast we choose? I will suffer or endure by maybe giving up something so that you might have social justice or so that we might be a better society because I love the the community or whatever. But anyway, that would be... The other day, and then Sandra, you made me think of doing art. Like, how could we tie in art or something with the sermon? Like, ask people to draw a picture of what they would see as reconciliation, or what they might see as um, what they want to change about themselves, and do something like that. Anyway, okay. What do y'all think about preaching? What tips? Mm. Yeah, so art I feel is important, especially when you have a, a space that is movable. Um, you know, you can incorporate. Um, what's it called, uh, tables and chairs, uh, definitely have a lot of supplies available for people. I think another thing is speaking. I've, I've realized that the more, um, I attend church, the less I want to hear, but the more I would like to hear other voices, not just the pastor, uh, no matter how amazing they are. But I think that the conversation is super important. Um, you know, anyway, I'm not going to go into that, but <laughs> Uh, but you know, for me as a lay person, I want to hear real things about my pastors, uh, who are preaching or anybody who is preaching. I don't want to hear about, you know, I don't want to hear what you learned in seminary or what you think you learned. I want to hear about your own struggles, about your own, um, questions about what you've thought throughout your life about this special day. And if you think you may not even like this day, so share that, you know, this may be difficult for you because it's probably difficult for a lot of people that are there. So I feel like, you know, being vulnerable and open with your congregation always brings something important from us, you know, and, and that's where you build a relationship. You know, and it, it a lot of people may be there for the first and only time. Do not let that go without sharing the love of Jesus and how important they are to Jesus and to God. Um, I think that's so important for our churches to remember that every day is a is a day to to take advantage of of the people that are there to um, to share and evangelize about how important they are to Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you don't give anything out. I mean, uh, all, what is it called? Up. You don't give anything up. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and there's nothing wrong if you never come back, right? You're still loved by Jesus. I think this is going to be a challenge this year because of the coincidence of, of Valentine's Day. And culturally, people are going to be, ment they're going to be they're mentally, they're going to be someplace else. They're going to be thinking about 
about things like that. But, uh, you know, in the liturgical year, there are two really serious days um, where you contemplate finitude, death, mortality, however you want to want to put this. The first is um, Ash Wednesday with those, you know, terrible words when you impose the ashes. And then the other is, is Good Friday, where we contemplate the fact that God is dead and I have killed him. Um, so part of the, the energy and the um, emphasis of these two days is, are, 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 go entirely against the culture in which we live. A big problem that this culture has with lack of self-esteem and people not understanding that they are loved by God and, and, mm. and those sorts of things. But most of the problems, and we talked about this earlier, most of the problems of uh, this world, whether it's racism, the, the, the environmental issues that we have, are, are not problems of a lack of self-esteem, but of us having too much self-esteem for ourselves and not thinking about others, not thinking about God. Mm. And, and so Ash Wednesday and then, you know, uh, is beginning a process where we, we're supposed to really think about our own mortality and our finitude and, 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 and our dependence upon, uh, upon God. So it's, it's very serious and somber. And it's one of those two days during the year with, with Good Friday where, where there's no kind of soft selling it or avoiding it. Um, and I don't think the clergy should. I think they should say, hey, listen, this is serious. This is important. This is why you're here. Um, and, and, and we want you to have a, a very meaningful and productive 40 days in order to really understand and appreciate the resurrection that comes on, on Easter. So in that sense, it's not, you're focusing on finitude for the sake of finitude, but it's, it's, it's focusing on that in order to go through a process of being able to receive the, res the resurrected Jesus on, on Easter Sunday. And, um, so that makes it a pretty pointed day. You know, a, a serious day, a somber day, but um, it's it's the fact that it falls on on Valentine's Day is going to be is going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. I think my quote for the rest of the year is going to be, um, "God is dead, and I have killed." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Greg, for that quote. I love it. <laughs> well, it's you know, it's 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 what you were talking about earlier. You need, you're not not saying the Bible is just uh, something that's dead and out there and is a piece of, uh, you know, uh, words. But you know, it's a it's a piece of scripture of which we we relive this whenever we're inhumane or 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 or, or what else? Where you know, it's it's us. We're 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 walking with Jesus. Thank you so much for being willing to be guests on this podcast. I know that our listeners love to hear you all. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your thoughts and your voice. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aniqua. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests. Greg and Sandra. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If our conversation moved you today, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. For 100 years, the generous donations of Episcopalians and supporters to the Good Friday offering have helped the Christian presence in the land of the Holy One to be a vital and effective force for peace and understanding among all of God's children. 
a lifeline of hope in times of genuine need in years past. The Good Friday offering continues to support churches, medical programs, and schools today. Now, more than ever, we celebrate the centennial of this historic fund. Your support is needed. Give online at iam.ec slash offering or text GFO to 91999. The Good Friday Offering, celebrating a century of gifts and rejoicing in 2,000 years of good news.